Blog Talk Radio. Archangels, ghosts, and Bigfoot, oh my. It's just another night for Supernatural Girls. Real stories, real answers to life's biggest supernatural mysteries. And now, for another exciting interview with paranormal experts from this world and others. Here's your host, paranormal researcher Patricia Baker, on the one, the only, Supernatural Girls. Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of Supernatural Girls Radio. I am your host, Patricia Baker, and I'm happy to report that I survived the blizzard. And we have three feet of snow to show for it. So we made it through. It's amazing. (laughs) My husband, God bless him, went out and plowed the entire driveway several times. And we have a long driveway. about two-thirds of a mile long, <laughs> and yeah, yeah, you've been on it, and it's, uh, it was sure. exciting. It's exciting. We lost power, and we've had no power for two days, and uh, luckily we had Internet up until this afternoon, and then they, when they came to fix <laughs> the electricity, they just decided it would be fun to cut the cable for Comcast. So, anyways, tonight... I am broadcasting the entire show from my cell phone. So I hope all goes well. So far, so good. And so glad to be here trying something different with broadcasting this way. But I'm so happy you made it, PK, and so happy you're here. So tell us what's going on with the numbers. I know you're going to talk about something a little different tonight. Well, you know, we've talked about master numbers. And the master numbers are actually equally as good. Some people consider them better than the average everyday number, but I like to deal with just the simplicity of the basic numbers. But master numbers have two issues. They're very conventional, and then we take a look at the phatic numbers that go with it. For instance, if you're looking at a certain word and it's an 11, it's also a 2. So whatever our master number is, it's reduced to a single digit as well. So when we're looking at these different ones, ask about the master number. Basically, for the ease of consideration, look at the single number. The phatic digit gives us everything we need. We'll just, for instance, we'll take a look at the word love. And it, when we're taking a look at it, it is a 54 by using the master numbers. But if we just use it as the conventional using, it becomes an 18.9. So you read each number separately. So like the 54, you look at the 5, it's all about change. The 4 is a lot of work. But if you look at it as an 18, it's an independent person that's in control of what's taking place. So the same situation, but how we receive the numbers in a total different way. So it's very interesting to follow. So the master numbers are 11 through 99. So it's at 11, 22, 33, et cetera. Everyone reduced to a single number gives us more information. But it's more simplistic and easier to use, and it makes 
a lot more sense just looking at the single digits because you don't have to go through the the balancing act of this way, that way, etc. So it's for looking at numbers. Don't always pay attention to the fact that we have master numbers to work with as well. Look at the case of the single digit. It gives us the information we need, and it's very accurate. Has been the base of what I put everything together with is the single digits and work off the others. The master numbers give us additional information if you're really into making a big project out of it. Not necessary. So I'm for the simple. Make it easy, smarter, for me anyway. <laughs> you have your own choices. Well, yeah, a lot of people talk about master numbers and what they mean. They want to know more about them because they see them everywhere. Like they'll look at the clock. It says 1111. You know, they'll they'll just notice a number over and over and over again, and they feel that there's a message that they may be missing because they don't understand what the 11 stands for or the 22 or whatever. So it's yes. a very interesting study, all of those master numbers. Well, when you take a look at it, the 11 becomes a 2. And 2 is about partnerships, relationships, and sensitivity. If you look at the 22, it's a 4. 4 means it's a lot of work, two people getting together to deal with the balance of things. So depending on how you look at the number, you get the same information, only it's a little more simplistic when you look at the single digit. It gives you more information to work with. If you look at the larger number, Sometimes it gets confusing because people try to dress it up and you can't put lipstick on the pig and make it look any different. The number is still going to be the same. <laughs> still the same. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's really good, good information. And I also wanted to share with everybody, I have put a couple of things up that I think everybody will enjoy. I put the grab code up on our YouTube mm-hmm. channel. And that's the Supernatural Girls YouTube channel. And the grab code is for unexpected money. And I'm sure mm-hmm. way back, if you were listening to us way back, you knew that we were giving numbers out, code numbers, every week. And uh-huh. then I decided it was time to actually create a video. So there's a really nice meditation video with receive unexpected money and that number is five two zero seven four four eight so that's repeated over and over for about 15 minutes if you want to listen to it longer you certainly can and people have always reported wonderful stories about receiving unexpected money after listening to this now if you're on tiktok and you like to watch tiktok That is the first and, at this point, only video that we have on the TikTok account. Mm -hmm. So you could watch it and listen to it there, and or you can watch it on the YouTube channel. We are going to be launching nine more of those, all different grab-a-boy codes. I think the next one is going to be Mm -hmm. Miracles. So we're going to have, have them come out as quickly as we can. And I'm working with a wonderful composer, Win Meyerson, and he's from L.A. He does music scores for all kinds of films, and he was very intrigued by this project, so he's providing original music for it. So it's very pleasant to listen to, thanks to Win. Yes. So tonight, 
Oh, my goodness. This topic yeah. this topic needs to be discussed, and we've got the man who knows what he's doing, how to present it. He is an award-winning filmmaker. John Yost is here with us tonight with his talking about this, this amazing subject that we have so many questions about, abductees. And the name of the movie is Alien mm-hmm. Abductee. Is it Abductee? Yeah, Alien Abductee. Answers. We need answers. We talk about alien abductees, um, extraterrestrial abductees, interdimensional abductees quite a bit on this show. And we haven't had a lot of answers, have we, PK? No, unfortunately. But, but tonight is going to, it's going to be different because Janios is with us. And we're going to find out everything about this whole topic that he knows and he went and dug deep. He also interviewed so many people across the country to hear their story, and he presented it in the most amazing way. You've got to watch this movie. He's going to talk about all the different outlets you can watch it on. It is available right now. So let's get John on the show. John, welcome to Supernatural Girls. Good evening, ladies. Thank you so much for having me, and I, I thank uh, your listeners as well. Well, this is, yeah, our pleasure is right, because this is an important topic for so many reasons. But tell us about you. You have a personal interest in this whole subject. So tell us about you and tell us how this whole incredible movie unfolded. Sure. Um, Well, the movie is Alien Abduction Answers, and uh, the film is is just out it's it's um it's been out since may uh, and it will be international this april so we're very excited about that um but the fact is is that this movie was never supposed to be made it was an accident um something happened to me when i was a little boy of seven and i lied about it my entire life and eventually, you know, if you ignore things in your life, they have a nasty tendency to build and build and build. And then eventually, under stress, they overcome you. And that's what happened to me. When I was seven years old, it was 1974 in Pennsylvania. And it was August. It was a very humid evening. And... Uh, my parents weren't wealthy, so we did not have air conditioning, and the windows were open, and my bedroom was on the second floor. I was awakened sometime in the evening, late, by this undulating hum, almost like a drone, like, and it disturbed me, and I was, I was very very tired, but I, I couldn't sleep, and I was I was disturbed by this noise, and so I sat up and wiped the, the, the sleep from my eyes, and I went to the restroom, and, and in there I, I poured the water, and it rained for a very long time. At some point, I turned the water off, and I opened up the bathroom door, and much to my surprise, Standing in the doorway was what, to my seven-year-old eyes, mind, was 
a character I had seen a thousand times on television. Uh, there was a a character in Japanese television called Ultraman. And mm. Ultraman was this giant guy. He was um, silver and he had these huge almond eyes and he had a pointy head and he fought the monsters. And so I, you know, as a little boy, of course I loved Ultraman. I thought it was cool, unique. And uh, there was no fear at all. The only thing that was strange about this Ultraman was that he was my size. And I was the smallest kid in my class until high school. So we're looking at each other, and somehow we got very, very close. And when I say close, I mean like nose to nose. And then something happened. I... um. I felt something that terrified me. And the only way I can explain it is this, is if your audience has ever been on a beach and the water comes in up over their ankles and as it goes back out to the body of water, it starts to pull the sand and dirt from underneath your feet and you feel like you're falling backward. That's the way it felt. And um, I panicked. And I flailed my arms like a drowning man. And when I did, I literally laid hands on this character. Well, there was this flash of light and speeding lights around me, blue, green, magenta, yellow. Um, it was almost like being in a speeding train or an out-of-control carousel. I, I couldn't make out what was going on. I felt like I was moving, but I couldn't tell. Felt cold air on my face, and and I kept fighting. And and, and as as I finally came to my senses, I found myself in a very strange situation. I was I had somehow interpolated myself with this character. He now was in the bathroom, and I was in the hallway, and I was completely confused about how that had happened. And, but I was in the middle of this fight, and I raised my hand to swing at this character, this entity. And he, I say he, but I don't know if it was a he, he raised his hand, and he touched me on the left shoulder. Well, it felt like a wave of energy, like almost like a wave on an ocean, hit me in the chest and knocked me backwards, and I fell. And behind me were these hardwood stairs. And I fell end over end and banged off walls and landed in a heap on the floor. Well, my parents, who had a bedroom on their first floor, I'm running around the corner, my father's screaming obscenities, uh, you know, what the hell's going on? And I'm, I'm, I'm literally sobbing and screaming like a banshee. I'm saying, Ultraman is upstairs, Ultraman. And my father bounds up the stairs you know, to look for the intruder. And my mother is trying to console me, but I am just crying uncontrollably. After some time, my father had been slamming doors up there. He came to the top of the stairs, and he had a, a disgusted look on his face. You know, there was nothing there, of course. And, and so he mentioned to my mother to bring me up, and so they brought me up. And they do what parents do. You know, they, they look under the under the covers, and they say, see, there's nothing here. And they look in the closet, see, there's nothing there, that sort of thing. And then after some time, they, they laid me back in bed, and my mom kissed me on the forehead, and I, 
I have to tell you that, you know, I, I think because of all the adrenaline that had pumped through my body, I was just exhausted. And I, and I, I fell into a coma. I just, like, why? I just lay down. I just crashed. Well, the next morning, I mean, you know, I'm going to date myself. You know, the kids can't get off a sofa. They can't get away from a phone. But back in the 70s, you know, I grabbed a waffle and ran outside. And you played all day <laughs> until your mom called you for right. dinner, right? That's Those are the good old days. Yeah. yeah, and so that's that's what I did, and I felt achy, like I had been beaten up. But you know, I didn't think about it. And I'm a little kid; I'm seven years old, and and so I played all day. My mother called me in for dinner, and and she said, "You are absolutely disgusting because I've been playing out in the humid weather all day." And she said, "We're going to get a bath before dinner," and I, I'm a little boy, and I don't want a bath. And she's struggling with me with my t-shirt. She finally takes it off, and and she's examining all the cuts and the, the bruises all over me, and then she gets to my left shoulder, and she says, oh, my God, honey, what happened here? And I, I looked around sheepishly, and I, I said, you know, Mom, I, I told you, Ultraman. And my mom, she she looked really sad, and then she gave a little kiss, and she said, it'll be okay, it'll be okay. And um, so a couple of days later, my father, and as we pull into the parking lot, my dad turns around and he says, now listen, get in there. I don't want to hear any of this Ultraman BS. You keep that to yourself. And, uh, you know, I, I, I love my dad. I'm sure, Dad, you know, whatever. I, I'm seven. You know, I have no idea the import of what he's saying or why I should be quiet or whatever. Anyway, the doctor's doing a cursory exam, and he's looking at the bruises and the contusions on me. And, and remember, this is a couple of days later, so they're yellowing and healing. And then he gets to my left shoulder, and he says, oh, hey, sport, what what happened here? Why well, I, I start to blurt out, well, there was this, and my father was standing in the corner, and he was giving me the eye. Once again, I'm going to date myself because you know, kids mouth eye. off to parents all the time now. You know, right, back in the right. 70s, if, you, if your father yeah. gave you the eye, you knew what the hell that meant. And, you didn't uh, do anything again, I'm, I wasn't, on that point. Yeah, I wasn't afraid of my dad, but but I you know, loved him and I respected him. And also, he was a huge guy. He was a big, big man. And, and, and so, you know, it was intimidating and so I said, so oh, what well, exactly, John, did the mark look like on your shoulder? Because it clearly caught the attention of your mother and the doctor. But what did it look yeah. like? Why was it, was it so different from any other mark, any bruise or cut? Well, you're speaking about it like it's the past tense, but I still have it. Oh. Um, yeah, I wear the mark today. The mark, mm. people... People have said all kinds of different things about what they see it as. It, to me, it looks like a thumbprint. It's uh, a very long, elongated, raised star. Uh, the best I can tell is it was it was produced by some extreme heat, and uh, even to this day, it changes colors and temperature. Um, but it's it's on my shoulder, and, and so just to kind of wrap this story up is is that you know I, I get back in the car, you know I got my lollipop from the doctor, and 
we're heading home, and as we pull into the driveway, my father says to me, now listen, I am absolutely serious about this. You shut your damn mouth about this Ultraman guy. I never want to hear about it again. I don't want you to say anything. I don't want you to scare your mother. I don't want you to scare your sister. And at this point now, I'm kind of concerned and, little, and a little afraid. And so I, I said, sure, Dad, whatever, you know. And so I lied about it ever since. But, you know, I went through my teenage years and early 20s, you know, playing sports and high school and university and, and uh, you know, people would say in the shower, hey, Yost, what the heck is that? You know, and I, and it was almost like muscle memory. I would say something glib like, oh, a shark bit me. Uh, somebody shot me. I, I got hit by lightning. But what it did was it diffused the situation immediately. It took, you know, six seconds to say that. And then everybody went, ah, Yost, you're full of it, you know, whatever. And then, then they never asked again because at this point I realized that anything would have been better than to say, hey, you know what, when I was a kid, I was, you know. And so that's what happened to me as a little boy. Yeah. Well, and, and just, yeah. now I just want to jump a little bit forward with the abductees that you've spoken with because yes. this is seems to be a theme for a lot of children especially who've been abducted, that they, these ETs or interdimensionals, I'm not sure what they are, but they go into your mind and they find a friendly figure and they act like I'm that friendly figure. So for you, it was Ultraman. I mean, for me, it was my pediatrician (laughs) who I really liked. Mm -hmm. He was such a nice guy. So, but they seem to be able to do that, to go in and see who they can project to you. And it's not mm-hmm. Ultraman, but it's no, no. It's I, I discovered that I discovered that throughout making the film that it was definitely not Ultraman. Um, yeah, we address we address screen memories in the film. Uh, I, I was I was confused throughout. I, I didn't know if maybe you know, as an adult, I've had a lot of time to you know think about this stuff in retrospect. I I, I didn't know if maybe that was screen memory that I had produced to protect myself from the trauma, or if in fact it was some sort of a rejection, as you mentioned, to calm me and to, and to you know, kind of lull me into compliance. Um, right. Uh, yeah. So, I, I mean, I, in, the, in the cases that I've studied and the cases that I've, I've dealt with, I, I honestly think that there's probably room for both of those situations. You know, because, Mm -hmm. and I'll say this, because what I'm recognizing is this, you know, people, God bless them, they they struggle to understand this phenomena in many different ways. And one of the ways they try to do is they try to control it in their mind. And what I mean is, is they want to put a name on it. They want to put it into a box. Right. So I want to say, this is not me, but I'm just saying as as an example, somebody says, Oh, well, these are the Arcturians, or these are Reptoids, or these are this, or these are this. Okay. Well, listen, this universe is gigantic. It could be any and all of that sort of thing. It could be some sort of insect. It could be some sort of humanoid. It could be some sort of gray. It could be, you know, no one owns the quote-unquote truth. And, 
you know, even if you take a look at our planet, you know, if you said, well, what's an earthling? And you went to Kenya, okay? And then you go over to Asia, and then you go to Norway. Well, everybody looks different. Everybody's bigger or smaller. Mm -hmm. They all have, you know, different um, customs. They all have, and that's one planet, right? So if you if you travel the universe, if you if you you know decide that life is prolific in the universe, and then if you add interdimensionality to it, then the myriad of life forms that could be out there is is, is endless, endless. So. I also think their agendas are probably endless. You know, there must be uh, ones, and, and their tools are endless. You know, some may use that projection, you know, to lull you in. Some may not give a darn and just use brute force. You know, and I've I've heard accounts of both of those. Yes. Yeah. Yes, we have too. It seems like, though, and tell us, John, your experience in talking to people uh, all over the world about this, We've heard that some of these more brutal abductions, they tend to focus mm-hmm. more in the area of South America. That's mm. where we've heard the most brutal ones. Is that your experience also? I um, I have to tell you that the ones that are the most uh, shocking are in South America. And I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with why that is. And uh, I don't know, you know, this is something to consider. Whatever is going on, there's a certain sort of communication. And uh, and we're not getting it. They're not getting it. And we're having all these non sequiturs in between us. Think, think about this. Think about this. You know, there's some places on the planet that if you wore black to a funeral, that would be an insult. Not to us. In our culture, it's perfectly natural. And, of course, it shows that you're solemn and you respect. But some cultures wear white. Okay. So how can that be? How can, how can this color be so diametrically opposed? Okay, now think about something that's not even human, right? How are they communicating with us? What are they treating us like? And is it that they, in fact, have no emotion? Is it, in fact, that they are perfunctorially just performing a job and not even thinking about it? Like, for example, if, 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 if you went to a slaughterhouse and you were able to speak to a cow, what would that cow say to you? Well, you know, these people really don't care about me. They really treat me poorly. Now, if you talk to the people who are going through it, it's just a job and there's no emotion at all. Mm-hmm. This is the whole right. thing for us because we as people, we as our species, we have this kind of normalcy bias where we believe that we truly are the top of the pyramid. But in fact, we are not. Exactly. Yeah, we're not. So our ego, our ego gets in the way. We say, "How dare you?" And you have no right. Well, could you imagine if a cow turned around, or a chicken turned around, or a lamb turned around and said, "Hey, listen, you have no right." How do you think that conversation would go? Not, mm. not very well for that chicken or the lamb or the cow, right? And so this is where we are, and, and we, we we have to we have to come to some sort of terms with that. Now. Once again, you mentioned that these brutal 
abductions usually happen in South America. Well, we can't say that that's exactly the same as it is in the UK or Norway or wherever. Okay, so are we dealing with the same culture dealing with all of us? Are these different cultures dealing with different ones? I, I tend to believe that we're dealing with several different, I usually say agencies, and I don't mean agency in the classic sense like, you know, CIA or FBI. I just mean like different sources of this phenomena. In fact, to push in on that, let me say this. I don't really feel comfortable saying, you know, everything is an alien, everything is this, everything is this. I, I, I try to put things in kind of buckets of experience, and this is where I'll go with this. You know, today, and unfortunately I heard about all the snow. God bless you up there. I hope you stay warm. But, you know, <laughs> think yeah. about it. 90, 99% of our population, they wake up in the morning and they touch a button and magically hot coffee appears. And then we press mm-hmm. a button and we can talk to somebody across the world. And we get into a nice air-conditioned car or a warm car, and we go to an air-conditioned or heated office, and we do. We really are not of the world anymore. We have kind of constructed our own sort of matrix. We're here, but we don't live in the world. And what I mean is, like, you know, 99% of the population 500 years ago you know, we, we farmed and we were part of the woods and the earth and we did this and we lived in shacks and we did all these things. Okay. Well, we're kind of isolated. So what happens is when we as a species somehow have an interaction with something natural, you know, we kind of default to, well, that's an alien, you know. Meanwhile, stories of lights in the in the forest and the wee folk and the little people, there's some sort of intelligence, some sort of, 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 um, yeah, I, I think I feel comfortable with saying some sort of intelligence is in earth, in, in part of the experience of earth that Gaia itself, the, the idea that, that this planet, because of all of the diversity in it, might harbor some other type of intelligence on this earth that's coexists with us since the beginning of time. That's a bucket of experience, but we would immediately say that's alien. Then here's another bucket. Another bucket would be this, that there is, in fact, tech that we have or other countries have that people have experienced, and we say, oh, that's a UFO. Or, or that, in fact, is, a, is an alien. Well, meanwhile, it's tech from here by people. And we have to allow for that bucket of experience to also exist. Then there's another bucket, that there are nuts and bolts craft that are visiting us. And, and when people have a hard time with that, I always say, listen, I said, I have some big news for you. Do you realize that we, human beings, have nuts and bolts craft that travel throughout the solar system? We go to other planets. We look. And you know what we do when we get there? We take measurements. We take pictures, and I can guarantee you, if we saw a three-headed elk, we'd come down in a black elk helicopter, we'd plug it, and we'd put a tag on it and track it. We would absolutely do that. But people have mm-hmm. to take umbrage to that because they think that we're the top of the pyramid, but we're not. And then also there's another bucket. There are two more buckets. The, set, the, the penultimate bucket is that it seems it seems as though there is some sort of civilization that may or may 
not have originated on this earth that has kind of hidden itself from us in mountains. You hear about this stuff like Telos and in Mount Shasta and all this other stuff. That in mountains are the sea, and they've been there forever, and they've interacted with mankind and womankind over the ages. So there's some sort of a uh, of an opportunity there in that bucket. And then finally, in the most this is the most esoteric, and that is this this idea of ultra terrestrials or interdimensionals. You know, we've called them angels and demons since the beginning of time. And they somehow, either through consciousness tools or through some sort of tech, push themselves into our dimension and then pop out without a trace. And when people have a hard time understanding that, I use this example. Patricia, suppose you and I are standing beside a pond, right? And I stick my face in the pond. I stick my face in the pond, literally pushing myself into the dimension of this watery pond. And a fish sees me, and I see the fish. Now, I don't look like any other fish this fish has ever seen. And I don't move like any other fish. This fish is completely shocked at my appearance. Well, after some time, I have to come out and take a breath. So I pull myself out of the dimension of the fish and pop out of existence. This fish runs to tell his little fishy friends. They come back. There's no evidence. And the rest of the fish say, you're a lunatic, and he goes off and starts a cult. Okay. <laughs> but, this is the, but this is the most important part. You know how they used to say the devil's in the details? This mm-hmm. nuance is so important. So watch this. You heard what happened, but what didn't, what wasn't considered? And here it is. That fish has no concept that my face is attached to a head that it cannot see, that's out of its dimension, that's attached to a neck, to a body, to a person, to a consciousness that has nothing at all to do with the fish. Maybe, maybe I just popped my head in just to see what the heck was going on there. I don't have any communion with this guy. I don't want to have any kind of relationship with this fish. I just was curious. But I have a life and a job and all kinds of other things that have nothing to do at all with a fish. See, we constantly, this is the problem on the front end and the back end. We as people, we allow our egos to control everything. So number one, that stuff is crazy. You people are nuts because my ego cannot accept anything that I can't see or I can't personally understand. And I am the most important person that I know. (laughs) And then on the other side, what happens is people have these incredible experiences, and then what they want to do is they want to name it and hold it for themselves. themselves. And then they want to say, this is my truth. And so they do the same exact thing. And so nothing beyond their experience is the truth. And that's why with my film, what I wanted to do was I went out and I found people, and these are beautiful, beautiful people, um, normal people, salt of the earth people, moms and dads and designers and scientists and artists and, you know, just, just normal people who have had this absolutely incredible thing happen to them. And some of their experiences were similar to mine, but most of them were very, very different. And it was important for the audience to see because 
This enigma will never, ever, ever come into any kind of focus if we try to tackle it just me or just you or just that guy over there. We need to understand that this affects all of us and we need all of our observations, all of our input to somehow come to grips with this thing. Because you know what? My film is not about just the shiny lights in the sky because when those shiny lights blink out, the only thing that's left is you and me. Mm-hmm. This movie's about us. Yeah, I hate you. Yes. And and I have been talking about your film uh, since you were kind enough to let us uh, look at it. It's just very thought-provoking. And I, one of the things I shared with you earlier, too, John, is what PK and I were noticing is there's no fear-mongering in your film. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's a very clear, heart-centered film. And it gives mm-hmm. all of the people you interviewed a chance to express themselves, to share their story, and without any judgment. Now, of course, if there's somebody in the audience that's going to judge them, that, I guess, says a lot about that person. But... While watching this, we were able to take in these experiences, and and it was just like listening to a friend you're having coffee with. You really have mm-hmm. helped to normalize these experiences. They're not something to be made fun of. They're not something to be ridiculed. These are real experiences, and they leave their mark. I mean, for some people, it's extraordinary for other people it's traumatic and some of that trauma follows them through their whole lives so mm-hmm. you created this whole platform that we haven't really seen before here because we have a culture yeah. that, that loves to, to scare the heck out of us about everything yes yes they do yes they do it's, it's a really sort of a sick situation, a uh, bunch of sadists. The, um, you know, uh, there are a couple of things that that, um, that make the film singular. And, and, and if you'll allow me, I'll, I'll, I'll say these things. First of yeah, all, please. you know, people have, I'm sure you are too, you, you good people have probably seen hundreds if not thousands of documentaries about UFOs or aliens. And usually what what happens is, is that a very, very smart person, somebody a lot smarter than me, uh, investigator, has you know, put together all the numbers and they know all the details and they dug up all the old press releases and all this other stuff. But they're not really an experiencer. Or maybe they become an experiencer during their investigation, but they but they're not an experiencer at the outset. And um, and then on top of that, they're really not a filmmaker. They're, they're, they're a person who chronicles information. So what happens is that you get, you get a piece that you watch that feeds your head. At the end, you're much smarter. You've, you've learned a lot, but it kind of leaves you cold because there's nothing about the heart. There's nothing about the person. And it's like a, a third a third person narrative. You know, you've seen a thousand of these things where you see a clip and then you hear in the background Walter Cronkite or somebody saying, you know, back in 1957, that sort of thing. And, yeah, right. and when you get out 
when you stop watching that film, you're like, okay, well, that was interesting. But my film, I, I was abducted. I did experience some things. All the people in the film are people who had experiences. So you're getting first-person narratives. And then on top of that, I have been in you know, the film and television business for over 30 years. So the film is made like a movie in that, as you know, from the very first frame, you are inside this. You experience the same sort of trauma and fear that I personally did. And the others, you are right to point out that, you know, many of the people did not have trauma. Um, they might have been confused, but they, they weren't afraid. Um, but you, you experience it. And what I tried to do was I tried to take people from where they are. I didn't want to tell them where they should be. You know, there are a lot of really smart people like yourselves and people who have dealt with their experiences for many years, but there are many people like me, kind of socially backward, who, who never dealt with it, who hid it, who lied about it, who felt terrible about it, who felt isolated and alone. And the world itself, the world itself is, is filled with a majority of people that are ignorant of this. And so ignorance breeds fear. So instead of telling everybody that they should be enlightened and illuminated, I took, I took the truth, which was the world is mostly in fear. And we start there. And then as you see, the film slowly but surely helps people, shepherds them, really, from that fear place with some sense of understanding. Because once you start to understand things, you can, you can lower your guard, and now you can make decisions. You can start to, start to put things together in your head. You don't have to be like a deer in the headlights. And so it, exactly. those are the ways that I crafted the film much differently than most documentaries of this sort. Yeah, it really it left us with a feeling of peace, you know, just instead of yeah. anxiety or agitation mm-hmm. or something like that. And, and quite honestly, I personally am tired of all these films about lights in the sky. I could care less. It's like, yeah. so what? You know, we know these things. We, we're up there flying around. We've seen them. Yeah. Um, it's so who cares? I mean, but when you're talking about people that have had face-to-face encounters, that's a whole different level. Then it's personal. And that's much more interesting. I think so, too. Once again, I I, I will harp on this a couple of times tonight. It's the ego thing, you know, that we, in fact, would never, ever have any kind of um, interaction, you know, uh, lights in the sky has finally become vogue. Okay, but you know, interaction with citizens—that's a bridge too far. And I just think to myself, you know, how silly that is. How absolutely silly that is. And I've taken a lot of guff from, you know, the, I, I'm not part of the UFO community or anything like that. But I've taken some guff from people. Um, because they are so concentrated on the lights in the sky, and they 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 say that I don't pay enough attention to it. And my 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 rebuttal is this: I say, look, what if I, John Yost, had a car, a flying car that moved 600 miles an hour, right? 
And uh, But I okay. obeyed all of the street lights, and I helped little old ladies across the street, and I, I gave to the poor, and I was a nice guy, and everybody liked me. No one would give a rat's behind about my tech. So I, I say, look, there's a place for all of those Lights in the Sky shows because that's about the, the what and the, and the where. My film is about the who and the why. Because guess what? If there are really, really nice guys in those little lights in the sky, then okay. If those are really, really bad guys, we have a problem. And so um, I, I think that is the crux of my search. And my film is called Alien Abduction Answers. And it's not necessarily I have the answers. That's not what what the point is. The point is is that I'm searching for those answers. And I realized that there were many people who were isolated, many people who couldn't come to terms with it and maybe felt alone. And so I thought, you know what? I can be the fool. I can be the scaramouche. Uh, they can laugh at me, and I'll ask the questions that nobody would ever dare ask anybody. And they can sit in the, in the warmth and safety of their own living rooms and and watch me struggle. And as I do, maybe somehow give them comfort and also landmarks that they can somehow simulate the information for themselves and come to their own answers. And, and that's really what the point of the film is about. Well, your film is a landmark in, in our opinion. I mean, this is a really great yes. film and it's so different. Now, where can people see this? Also, I, I don't want to go any further because I know I'm getting a lot of texts saying, where can I see this film? So tell sure, us sure, where. Sure. The film is available. The film is available uh, on Amazon Prime, on iTunes, Apple TV, on um, Kino Now, on all the cable stations if you have video on demand. And the title of the film is called Alien Abduction Answers. Or they can look up my name, John Yost, which is Y-O-S-T, and they can find it. Excellent. Now, Whitley yeah, Driver that, is in is – I'm sorry, did you want to say more about where people can find it? No, I'm just going to say that it's, it's available all throughout North America. And then after April 15th, so just a little while from now, uh, it'll be available internationally, anywhere in the world. Perfect. Yeah, yes. congratulations. Sure. Now, I wanted to bring Whitley into the conversation. As as our listeners mm-hmm. know, we've had Whitley on our show. He's just a very lovely man. His book, Communion and Movie, quite extraordinary. And he is in your film. Yes, I am very blessed that uh, Mr. Streber is in my film. He, um, I didn't know him. Uh, he, um, I, I, I made the film, and then I said, "Listen, this thing is very emotional, and and it could get out of hand." And you know, sometimes when you make films, you have to push yourself back, especially if you have something at stake. And because I'm throughout this film, and because it's so emotionally visceral for me. Uh, you know, you, you had to pick your head up and say, hey, okay, well, to a third party, how's it going to look, you know? 
you know, you can't make a movie just for yourself. You have to make it for everybody else so they understand it. And so I realized that we kind of needed a um, kind of a sage voice of reason throughout. And there was nobody that I could under, I could even imagine that had written more about it, had dealt longer with it than Mr. Whitley Stuber. And um, so I didn't know him, as I said, and I had a, a friend who knew a friend who knew a friend of a friend. And then eventually uh, we had a conversation on the phone and, and um, I have to tell you something. He was pretty tough on me. Uh, really? I, you know, I've been in the. Uh, oh yeah. Well, there's a there's a there's a moral to the story. The uh, he was pretty tough on me, and he ended up like interviewing me. It was pretty aggressive too. And at the oh. time, I I was a little you know shocked. I was a little put off because you know I I've dealt with some of the biggest stars on the planet, and usually you know. They're very nice to me, and I couldn't understand this. Now I realize, you know, now that the film's been out, um, you really want to be respectful of everybody. But, of course, there are individuals who are not of sound mind, uh, that are disturbed, that may have illusions of grandeur, et cetera, et cetera, or believe that they're a kangaroo and you are their leader. <laughs> I, I actually had that happen to me, so that's why I'm saying it. So I'm certain that he wanted to make certain of me to make sure that I was, right. you know, a legitimate filmmaker, that I was established, uh, you know, all of these things, and that I wasn't, you know, I hate to use the word kook, but let's just say it, kook. And so after some, you know, really uh, <laughs> kind of a scathing first conversation, we we talked a little bit more, and, and I'll, I'll tell you something. Really, you know, you said that he was a lovely man. Now let me let me let me support that with a with a with a story. So, I said to Mr. Streber, I said, um, "Well, sir, what I what I plan to do is write out these questions, and I'm going to send them to you. And if and if you find that you don't want to answer some of these, or if you find they're out of bounds, I want you to put a red line through it, and that's the way we'll proceed." And he said, "Okay, we can move forward that way." And so what I did was I literally went out and bought every one of his books, all of his fiction books, all of his philosophy books, all of his abduction books, and I read every single one of them. And wow. then I came up with 60-plus 60 60 plus questions, and I sent them to him. And he came back to me, and he said, you know, John, these are pretty insightful questions. I don't know that anybody's ever asked me some of these questions. Um, but he did not budge. He did not ask me to take off any of the questions. And I, 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 there were some real pressing questions. So I go out to meet him uh, on the West Coast. And the day before we're going to have the, the interview, I, want, I wanted to have dinner with him. And I wanted to break bread. So we'd have a little bit of a rapport before you know, the interview. And he was an entirely different man. He, he was a little bit sarcastic. He was very, very funny. And he teased me the entire evening. And I have to tell you, I've been an Irish kid, and I laughed my head off. I have a good sense of humor. And the more he picked on me, the more I belly laughed. And I thought it was the most delightful time I had ever had. So the very next day, I have my crew with me, and we're, we're, going, to, we're going to do the interview. And I, I have a big crew. And um, he was kind of impressed with all the moving parts. And and we get down to it, and, and I, there's a picture of actually me leaning over to him. And I say to him, I say, Mr. Struber, I just want you to know that 
I'm going to make you look perfect. I'm, the lights are right. The makeup is right. The, everything is perfect. The set looks And I'm right in the middle of telling him this. And he grabs my arm kind of firmly. And he says, you know, John, I don't, I really don't give a damn how I look. I just want to tell the truth. Hmm. And I thought, I thought, man, I want to grow up and be just like you. You know, that kind of integrity, you know what I mean? Just that integrity. Uh-huh. And and so I'll tell you that the kind of cherry on this silly Sunday is this. You know, uh, I would never, ever claim to be Mr. Strieber's friend. Uh, we are very, very, very friendly. And we speak, you know, every three to six weeks or whatever about the film and the status and where it is and this sort of thing. But uh, I just respect him so much. I, I call him Mr. Streber, and I think he gets a kick out of that and then teases <laughs> the hell out of me. And he <laughs> me. And so, um, and I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change it for the world. I just, uh, I really adore the man. And um, he is so much more than an author. He really is, as I say in the film, he is a thought leader and a philosopher and um, has a has a way of, cutting right to the central point. And um, the film would not be the same without his interjections. I'm a blessed man to have yes. him in the film. Yeah, really. He is the wise man. And I'll tell you, that movie of his book, Communion, is one of the few mm. movies that really creeped me out. I mean, I had nightmares <laughs> about that movie. It was so well done, Christopher Walken, so spooky, and even though I, I didn't like the anxiety I felt from this movie, it was really well done, and I think it does speak to um, the unknown and how how complex it is and how we don't quite give enough room to experience it and understand it. So mm-hmm. it remains something that can scare us, even though at this point it really shouldn't. So, again, good for you yeah. that you got Whitley involved in your film. It was nice to see him uh, there. I'm very lucky, very, very lucky. And and, and as I say, the, the the quality that he adds to the film and, and the way that he synthesizes the information is just invaluable. And I learned so much from him. Um, I, I I will always be grateful to him. Well, that's wonderful. It really is. Now, I have to ask you, John, <laughs> you have accomplished yes. something remarkable with this movie, Alien Abduction Answers, and there are answers mm-hmm. in the movie. Uh, what's mm-hmm. next for you? Do you have another film on the mm-hmm. horizon? I am um, I'm working very hard to raise the funds to do a second and third film. One of the things that I realized throughout this, uh, actually through the help of Deb Shakti, uh, who was the, the therapist who actually helped me uh, deal with some of these things and helped to regress me. She's a she's one of those people that, you know, you've heard the term Christ consciousness. She really is that kind of person, service to others, and she has this global practice. She's just um, an amazing person. I, I consider her like a guardian angel to me. Um, but what I realized was that you can't eat an elephant in one bite. You know, 
I'll use a really <laughs> crass example. You know, somebody abuses themselves, you know, with food or liquor or drugs for years and years and years. And then they want to go cold turkey and take a pill and they want to lose the weight or become completely sober in a weekend. That doesn't happen. It's not, that's not a reality. You, take, you have to heal. You have to heal. You break a bone, it takes time to heal. And mm-hmm. at the end of Alien Abduction Answers, I say this. I pause it. You know, what is it about those bright, shiny lights in the sky that make me want to be a better person, change the way I think about things? I don't understand that. These are things that I'm still grappling with. I, I don't get it. And so I end the film was searching for more answers. So the next film, well, let me say this. This first film, as I mentioned, Alien Abduction Answers, takes people from fear and ignorance to some sort of understanding. My next film hopefully will be called Alien Abduction Awakening. And what that's about is taking people, taking people from that sense of of understanding some sort of integration of the information. You know, once you understand something, you can integrate it, and then it can allow you to make decisions. You know, a, a silly example I use is this. You know, have you ever walked into a dark room and saw something you didn't know, and you turn on the light and your, your heart is pounding, and you realize it's your jacket over a chair, right? It's nothing to be afraid <laughs> right. of. Okay, well... Well, now you can make decisions. You can integrate that information. Number one, you can hang that jacket up. Number two, you can decide, hell, I'm never going in that room again. Or number three, you can say, listen, I'm not going to be afraid. So you can make decisions. So how do you integrate the information? That's what the second film's about and how people have integrated. I mean, when you start to know this truth, how the hell do you go grocery shopping? It seems so banal. How do you live your life? What do you do? What, is it, what does it do to people? How does it change people? Because I'll tell you something. Some very drastic changes happen to people. You know, um, in, in many cases, they lose family and friends like me. In some cases, they lose relationships. They change mates, this sort of thing. They find their soulmate. They find other things that they're passionate about. There are other people who find great gifts, psychic gifts, artistic gifts, these sort of things. So that's what the second film is, this awakening in the human psyche because of this experience. And then the third film, hopefully, will be called Alien Abduction Ascension. And a lot of people think, you know, that's woo-woo. But what I, as you saw my film, my film is more about us as human beings than the bright, shiny lights in the sky. It's more about us because when the lights go out, it's just you and I. We have to deal with it. We have to understand it. We have to apply it to our lives. So this Ascension movie, Alien Abduction Ascension, will be a shared experience among all people. You know, I don't care what continent you were born on. I don't care what language, what religion. We all have the same common experience of crawling on our stomachs and then eventually being able to kind of come to our knees and then wobbly stand on our little legs, and then we learned how to take a few steps and walk, and then we bumped our heads many times, and then we eventually learned to walk and then to run. Well, what happens when you finally get some answers, you integrate it, 
Now, what do you do with your life? How do you change the world? What, what purpose do you have? I mean, I take a look at you two ladies. Every time you get on the air, you've taken this information, you've got some of your answers, you've integrated it, and you've decided to take it out into the world and put your footprint down and literally through the energy of your work, which I consider almost a ministry, you're reaching out to people and opening their minds and their souls to another other reality. And that itself is a paradigm shift. That itself allows us as a species to grow. And that's where I think my work is taking me. Well, thank you for that compliment. That is how we see the show. It's something that we love and we want to spread this paranormal is normal uh, paradigm for people to really feel comfortable to explore all aspects of the paranormal. And we are so excited, I know you are PK too, about your next two films. My goodness. I mean, this one is quite a triumph. Alien Abduction Answers. And we encourage everybody to watch it. It is going to change you. I mean, it is so subtle, but it is so powerful. It will change you to watch John's movie. So please do spread the word about it, everybody. And, John, you're raising money. Is there a GoFundMe up there somewhere that people should know about? Or how are you doing your (laughs) fundraising? No, I've been doing it very quietly, very quietly. The first film costs me $500,000. But it looks like a movie, so it should cost that. And the next film should be around seven hundred thousand dollars. There's a lot of money, so I don't ask people for cash. I, I'm, I'm looking for private investors who are, who are, uh, who are, uh, who understand this goal and want to spread mm-hmm. that message, and are, are, are business people. I'm not looking for people to give me their piggy bank or, or their four hundred one k. No, that's not what that's not what I'm about. Well, well, this has been a great for us to listen and see what you put out there, John. We're yeah. very Thank fortunate for the level you have. Looking forward Thank to you. the yes. future of what's coming. Well, and we can't wait you. now Thank for your you next film, much. so you, you better <laughs> get either. filming. Me either. Yeah, We're well, waiting. I'll leave you with this little teaser. You know, when I finished the film, I kind of thought, well, all right, uh, you know, I'm feeling better. This has been a catharsis for me. It's going to help other people. And and it, uh, what I did was I explored something that happened to me when I was a boy. And I was wrong. Somehow, that door has been cracked open. And experiences are starting to happen to me again. And there's missing wow. time, and there's places that I've never been that I end up in, and I don't understand it. And so part of this is me still coming to terms with that and understanding that and integrating that. And that's what the second film will begin with. Oh, wow. Yeah. Very so it'll be, exciting. It'll be, yeah, mm-hmm. it'll be just as intimate as this one is. No, we can't well, we wait. Well, we can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank already. you. 
Oh, John, good luck with everything that you're doing. God bless you because this is so important. Yes. And we support your work 100%. Everybody, again, the name of the film is Alien Abduction Answers. You can find it on all the platforms. From now, Amazon Prime, you said has it, right? A lot of people have Amazon Prime. Yeah, Amazon Prime. The DVDs are in Amazon Store. Uh, it's on Google Play. It's on Kino Now. It's on iTunes and Apple Apple TV. Yeah. So, honestly, all they need to do is probably speak into their remote control, and they can find it. Terrific. Okay, everybody. Well, again, John, thank you so very much. It's been so wonderful to speak with you about this. And next week, everybody, we'll be back. We're going to be back. And hopefully the snow will be melting, and I'll be back on my computer instead of broadcasting from my phone. (laughs) You just want to be a snow bunny. It's okay. (laughs) No, I am done. I am so done with the snow. Thank you very much. But anyways, everybody, stay safe, stay warm, and until next week, we will see you on the Blue Highway. Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another radio adventure with Supernatural Girls.